Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in the UK and America. Today on the podcast, I am joined by the British writer-director Andrew Hay. Andrew's new movie is the incredible and emotionally devastating All of Us Strangers. Andrew is one of my favorite filmmakers working. I love all his movies. I so, so love 45 years. I think that's just a total masterpiece. When I was asked to contribute to the Sight and Sound poll, I put that on my top 10. I love Lean on Pete and All of the Strangers could be his best film. Also, anytime Andrew Hayes' name comes up with film friends or people who work in the industry everyone will say nicest person in the game he's universally beloved and i can confirm it's true he's the best i met him briefly at a screening at bfi and got him to sign my criterion blu-ray of 45 years because that's how i find joy and we speak briefly on instagram and i saw all of the strangers was showing at the london film festival and i was like wow congrats can't wait to see it and he said let me know what you think and then i looked at it again on the website and i was like shit sold out so a few days later i get an email from his publicist saying andrew heard you want to see the movie here's some free tickets I'm telling this guy, he's the best. And this pod was recorded just before Christmas. We met up to talk about his new movie, Fine Young Cannibals, and Jacob's Ladder. Here is me with the delightful, the best, Andrew Hay. No, no, I'm, 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 like, I'm always scared I'm going to start coughing or choking on my so one of my many. Oh, yeah, that's more. Grab a mic. I'll put that there so I'm not clinging and clanging to my tea the whole time. How's it going? It's, it's going good. It's good to see you, yeah. Let's jump right in. Big question to start. Was there a movie you saw that made you want to make movies or think making movies for you was possible? That's such a hard question, isn't it? Because I feel like there's movies that I saw that made me realize the power of yeah. the cinema. So there's definitely those movies. I saw, I used to work as an usher at the BFI when it was National Film Theatre at the time, back in the 90s. And I saw Laventura, the Antonioni film. And I remember thinking, oh my God, you really can make something that can have a real impact just through the power of images. 
uh, to express an idea or, or a theme. But then there were other films that I grew up watching that sort of had that impact. And then there were like weird low budget stuff that was being made, I guess, at the in the 2000s or something uh, that made me realize I could actually physically go and make a film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. When I saw things like all the slacker movies like Clerks or totally, yeah. Strange in Paradise, or, or you yeah. can kind of see a film could, could literally about anything. Yeah, and all those kind of later movies, like remember Joe Swanberg was doing a lot of films, all those like what were called mumblecore films in America. I'd watched a bunch of them and was like, oh yeah, you, I forget, of course you can just go and make a film for like virtually no money. Yeah, and just like a mini DV camera and some friends exactly. and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when I was going back for your filmography on the Uber ride here, all your film, obviously I'm a huge stan, but all your films seem like miracles that these type of movies are made these days. It's is nice that- to hear. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because I feel like it's funny, isn't it? I, I, They've definitely have got easier to make them. Yeah. You know, because people now like will... You've got a track record. I've got of, a track record yeah. and they're like, okay, we want to make a film with you. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like it's getting easier right. to actually make them. And there's still more... There's actually, well, there are more demands. The more you make, there's more demand for it to be a certain thing or are you going to do this or are you going to do that? And so... See, I thought you'd be easing up into your modest blank check era. (laughs) I don't think, I'm not sure I'll ever get to my modest (laughs) blank check area. I'd like to get to a modest blank check area. I feel like it's like, I feel like I'm getting to the stage where people are sort of, well, if you want to make that, yeah, Yeah. I think we could probably raise the money to make that. Rather than like, oh yeah, let's make that. So it's definitely getting easier. And I know what it's like for younger filmmakers. It's still really hard to get your first film made. So I appreciate that I actually have been able to make films for the last 12 years, whatever it's been, because, you know, that in itself is a miracle. Like 45 years, it seems, well, all the middle-aged actors say that once we get to that age, we're written off main characters or I'm a grandmother or I'm an acute kind of, Richard Kurt is kind of yeah. spot, but you don't, you don't see a movie about a forty well a forty five year relationship, which was no, and it was weird because after I finished Weekend, um, everyone was sort of expecting me to do something that was, I guess, similar to Weekend, even yeah. though I think forty five years is definitely related to Weekend in many ways thematically, but they were expecting me to do another thing about like a gay relationship, yeah, and, and I was trying to make forty five years, and everyone was sort of really, you want to do that. No one's going to want to see that film, which of course then just inspires me more to want to make it. Right. Because I feel like if someone says nobody wants to see it, it probably means that they're actually, they do want to see it. It just hasn't been done yeah. in the way that it should be done. So I sort of quite like that as a motivating factor. Were you intimidated by working with those heavyweights? I was, yeah. I was terrified. It was like... Yeah. You get any imposter syndrome going on with like... Well, know? I mean, look, come on. I've all, every, I mean, I constantly have imposter syndrome. Okay. <laughs> so that never goes away. But I definitely had it then. I was like, oh, I went to meet Charlotte in Paris and I was going up in an elevator to her apartment. And I was like, oh God, this is, I was so terrified. And she was lovely. And like, I had no reason to be terrified. Yeah. Um, but in many ways, like when I've worked with people that are famous, I'm always nervous to start with. And then you realize, well, I mean, they're just as nervous as everybody else. Like, in in fact, the more famous you become, the more you have to prove every single time you make a film. Yeah. Because everyone's like, oh, I don't like them. They're overrated. So every time they have to keep keep proving to an audience why they're a good actor. Yeah. 
I randomly found myself at a dinner with Christopher Nolan's DOP because we were trying to make something next year. And I was like, what's it like for, I, w- I want to experience DOP on my new project, but I've, I haven't made a fucking film since uni. Yeah. So I have no idea what to do. And he says, everyone's there because they want to be there. Like veteran actors or yeah. veteran cinematographers always know they've been on a million more sets. Yeah than you have it is true it's also just knowing that when you're when you're meeting people and talking to them just make sure you get people that do want to actually be there yeah like that's the and if they want to be there they want to be there yeah like for actors or for you know dps everybody and you soon know that when you talk to people that they if they care about the project you're like well yeah i would never go for the best dp in the world if you didn't care about the project like why would you bother so i'd much prefer to go with someone that actually understood the material and cared about it uh, enough to want to, to really want to do it. And what drew you to Lean on Pete? I'm a huge fan of Willie's work. Yeah, Willie's work, basically the book. I yeah. like my, my partner gave me the book actually and said, I really think you'll, you'll love this. And I, I just love that novel and his way of like, it feels like it's not Willie's story, as in he's not that kid, but it feels so personal, that novel. And it feels so grounded in the, the minutiae of life in all its sort of like dirty, <laughs> thorny yeah. detail. And he's such a beautiful writer and such a nice, kind, like soul as well as a writer. Um, and yeah, it's funny. I, I felt like that even though the film is so sort of, I mean, it's not my life, clearly it's not my life, but I really felt like I understood that character. I cared mm-hmm. so much about Charlie. I felt like I was Charlie, even though my life is not like Charlie uh no i i i love the book and yeah that's why basically why i wanted to make the film i felt like i yeah that was the film for me i think i said that guy is changing my life when i i met him when i was before i started just before i started doing printed movies i had this side hustle where i was freelance writing for magazines i could get the interviews getting them home to magazines was always the issue mm. so i i'd interview someone and lie and said it's for vice and then try and give it to Vice. And it usually worked, but I, I got a polite, not polite message from Little White Lies, like, stop doing this. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I was like, but I've got like a fucking interview with Chloe Sevenier, but how the fuck can I not find a home for it? But I spoke to Willie at a book signing and I just said, what's your favorite movie? And he said, probably Repo Man. And I said, I'm going to interview Haradine Stanton for his the amazing documentary that came out about him and he was like i used to tell people harry sandon was my dad <laughs> and i said harry sandon looks and sounds like my dad and i think on a i don't i have a present father figure let the record reflect but paris texas hit me so deep yeah. with his my dad's like a really quiet irishman and i was like he says very little and i was like he looks and sounds like my dad willie was like fuck you're anything harry stanton and in my head i was like i am but I haven't got a home for it yet, but I, I can't do Harry dirty. Yeah. The, out of respect, I cannot fuck with this guy's time and not find a home for it. So I said, right. I said, yeah, I am. And in my head, I said, right, you're going to find a home for it before you interview him. And I think that was the last time that I was fucking around. And, and did you find a home for it? Little, little white lie said, yes, okay, it's good. great. We'll, t- we'll, we'll, we'll take it. Good. But then after that, I said to Harry at the end, I said, this has been great. I'm obsessed with Paris, Texas, Repo Man, Pretty in Pink, Straight Story. I was like, you're my favorite actor. And then at the screening in Curzon, 
I met the director and she was like, Harry sent you a present. <gasps> and he sent me like a signed vinyl of him singing Everybody's Talking. Oh my God, that's and, amazing. And I was like, what? That's like old school. Send that kid a, a gift. That's so sweet, isn't it? Incredible. I think that was his final, one of his final interviews. And to the point it got weirder that when I had my, this was, I had a dictaphone plugged into the landline and I was playing it back. And my mom's like, why are you recording your dad? And I was like, fuck, if you think that's like my dad, that is my dad. Maybe he is your dad. You just haven't realized. Maybe your mom's let's not do, telling let's you do something. do a DNA test. Do a DNA test. Maybe you are Howie Dean Stanton's son. That'd I'd love that. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah. This pod is brought to you by our friends at Mubi. Mubi is a curated streaming service dedicated to bringing you great cinema. I've been a Mubi subscriber for years and I love this. I get to look around the Mubi UK platform and I'm going to give you my free favorites to watch. Okay, no brainer. Fallen Leaves by Aki Kurismaki. Mubi and Deeper did a screening of this in London last year and it's a beautiful film about love and loneliness and cinema and all those good things. So that is number one. Two, Reservoir Dogs. Unsurprisingly, I was obsessed with Quentin Tarantino as a teenager and I haven't mentioned this on the pod that he was in London doing a book tour, signing his screenplays, and he was in Brighton earlier, and I think meant to come to London around six o'clock. He was talking for so long in Brighton, he completely missed the window to get to London, and we were just left hanging about because Quentin was talking too much. That's the most Quentin thing ever. Regardless of that, Reservoir Dog still stands up as a masterpiece. So check out that. Okay, finally, Pacification by Albert Serra. I've not seen this. Henry from The Deeper Team keeps on talking about it. It was David Fincher's favorite movie of last year. All I know it's it's a near three hour paranoid epic. Sold. So those are my free picks for you. And good news. You can watch all these movies and more for free. Just go to movie.com slash deeper into movies for 30 days of movie. Absolutely free. So what drew you to this movie? Do you, 
did you think like uh, is this something you've been boiling up inside you to address you mentioned something roughly to that uh, at the q a of that yeah it's, age and r- relationships and family were just some kind of brewing inside you yeah that. i feel like they were all, you know whenever you're drawn to a project yeah you sort of it's almost like afterwards you're asked to say why did you want to make this project yeah at the time of making it you really don't know because mm-hmm. you don't have all the answers you don't have any of the answers basically all you know is there is something about this story that i'm wanting to explore and I always, that is the thing that motivates me to do anything, mm-hmm. any project. So I don't know what was bubbling up inside of me when I decided to make this. It was pre-pandemic, but I wrote it during the pandemic. Uh, you know, I'm, I was getting to my, I'm 50 now, I was in my late 40s, I suppose. I was thinking a lot about how the past has made me the person that I am and the things that parts of my past that I still need to reflect on and understand. So I feel like, that's always been brewing up on me. And I and so I think uh, it just made sense at the time. And then afterwards, you're like, well, yeah, it kind of definitely makes sense. I'm, there's a lot of things I'm trying to explore about family, about um, my relationship to family, queerness in relationship to family, uh, the similarities and differences between romantic love and parental love and all of those things that have sort of been in quite a lot of my work has all been bubbling under about like – and you know, how the past can erupt into the present and change everything within your present, even if it's something small from the past or something big from the past. So uh, I think you just listen to your gut when you're trying to choose a film and like, yeah, that makes sense. And when I was thinking back that you went back to your childhood home and rebuilt it, that could have really fucked. <laughs> did, you, did you know over time that was that emotionally devastating? Was that... It was like, it wasn't emotionally devastating. It was just, it was weird going back to the house for the some first time. Some sort of like time. regression therapy It or was something. definitely like reparenting or regression therapy for some to some degree. And it's, I hadn't been there for over 42 years. So it's been a long time since I'd ever even seen the house. So to go back and look at it and be from the outside and be like, is that the house? I think it's the house. But there's trees outside it now that weren't there for 48 years ago. Um and it looks very different. And then going inside the house and realizing it sort of feels exactly how it used to feel, mm-hmm. even though it's been redecorated. And then like turning it back into my house, redecorating it how I remembered it being. I think it was just more than anything, it helped the film. It's about someone going back into the past. And for me to to have that feel grounded and real, I felt like I just had to do the same thing. It made no sense not to. If I'm writing about a childhood home, why would I not just make it my own childhood home? Sure. It just made it's just like in many ways it's just easier than I have to come up with a new childhood home. I'll just use my <laughs> version of my own. Um and yeah, there were times and it was like, what the fuck am I doing? And this is so strange. And why am I doing this? But I think it helped everybody weirdly. It meant that everybody had something to talk about when they were in that house. And they started talking about their own memories, their own histories. The actors would talk about their own childhoods. And I think it sort of fed into a feeling of intimacy that then stayed within the film mm-hmm. and then came out on screen. Did any of your family come on set? To... No, I didn't let anybody come. I, okay. It felt like it was sort of bringing two worlds together that I wanted to keep very, very separate. Mm-hmm. In a, and I think actually... If my mum had, let's say, had come to the house, yeah, right, I wouldn't have been. It would have been a disaster for me emotionally. Right, but yeah. so I had to keep everybody separate. 
Uh, and you know, like it's it's funny. Like when you're making something that feels personal, you're choosing to reveal certain things and not reveal other things. So it's not like it's not an autobiographical film about me. Mm-hmm. There's just elements of my life that are definitely in the film, and there were lots of elements of my childhood that are nowhere near the film and are separate from the film and exist down the road of the story and the audience won't know about and has nothing to do with them. So you're always just choosing about what you're ready to reveal, I suppose, Mm -hmm. and what you're not wanting to. Do you ever get in your own head about people projecting onto the film like this is the... The hey bio. Yeah, I do a little bit because obviously everyone, the first thing says, you know, I've been to screen. Kind of like, do I have to preface that? I had a present father figure who didn't disappear into the desert, like Harry <laughs> Sand and stuff. Like people like, yeah, no, everyone thinks my parents are dead. So everyone yes. thinks they're dead. Everyone's like, I'm so sorry you lost your parents in a car crash. And I'm like, I haven't lost my parents in a car right. crash. They're not dead. And it's like a weird conversation because then you feel like uh, they can think I've tricked them. Like I'm allowing this film to be made yeah. that I'm saying is personal, but clearly my parents are still alive. But, you know, but a film can be personal without being autobiographical, obviously. For sure, yeah. And, and in fact, they're often the most personal. I always I think a lot about Terence Davies, right? Yeah. His films felt so personal, even when they were nothing to do with him from the, you know, you know, you could tell a story about Emily Dickinson, right? Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's about him, but you feel like he's constantly in the background of that story. Yeah. And that is the kind of personal cinema I like is when it doesn't have to be autobiographical, but it feels personal. What were you watching for inspiration for the film? Did you show the... I didn't show much is the thing. I didn't think... I, there were like films I looked at and I looked, I, I, I basically looked at a lot of films that varied from proper serious drama to yeah. genre pictures. Yeah. And more it was to try and work out where I wanted to sit within that. So like I watched Jacob's Ladder right masterpiece which is a fantastic film and i always loved it when i was younger like i was obsessed by that film and i still it really like takes repeat viewing it really still really works that film um now this film isn't jacob's ladder and then i watch like cries and whispers again which this film is not this that film also but i just try i sometimes just try and watch a bunch of films to sort of navigate myself in where I want my film to sit, mm-hmm. rather than it be like, I'm going to use this shot as inspiration. Yeah. I'm going to use this tone as inspiration. How was it doing the, the more supernatural, scary moments of a film? You handled them really well, but it was it was exciting for me seeing your films like, okay, he's nailing the genre elements too. Was that a I kind concern? of really enjoyed those, yeah. like, that, that, like, journey to genre let's say or like playing around with the edges of genre you know but the truth is i've like i love all types of movies yeah so i love horror film and i love ghost stories and i you know watch them all the time and so and i used to be a used to read all stephen king books when i was a kid and just adored them i just was like obsessed by them what was your King it, book it was all i mean it i loved when yeah. i read that it was but it was the earth so it was all like the shining and carrie and cujo yeah. and and all of those books uh different seasons which actually she talks about the mother talks about in the in the film uh but i loved those books growing up and i was obsessed by that kind of stuff so i feel like like it's no surprise to me that i like to play around with drama whether i would do a, a full-on horror mm. story i don't know i kind of would but i don't know what like that would be and i feel like the problem with so much horror is you you have to live up to so many expectations of what the film needs to be and i'm never very good in that when i feel like i have to meet expectations 
How do you choose a project? I think in my head when I'm watching your career, I'm like, he's just smashing. He went from banger to banger to banger. And then I was watching the the Palmer documentary and he was saying, directors can't, everyone thinks we have this beautiful map of our career, but it's not, it's this got options. This director dropped out. This was put in front of me or I was fucking broke and needed a hit. (laughs) So I did untouchables and things like that but i was wondering how, how do you yeah, think in terms of your career because of... i think you're, you're always look it makes sense we're always trying to create a narrative on our own lives about why we do things yeah and i am very careful about what i choose like yeah. i said a lot of stuff and i don't usually don't do most of it and i need to be able to feel like something has been ignited in me that feels like oh yeah that i can spend two years of my life on that or there's something in that that i understand or is feels personal or i want to experiment with or feels like a risky move maybe or whatever so but i've still never entire i haven't got a there's no map there is no map. Right. it's not like i need to do this now because i want to do this it doesn't yeah. work like that and look some things happen because they send you something like this got book got brought to me and i'm like oh yeah this makes sense i can do this there's another project that i was supposed to do that hasn't happened it probably would have been an interesting project to have done but timings didn't work and things don't work and you just kind of move on from that and you know so I'm never entirely sure why I make the decisions I make. And we were talking when we met after the screening, Fine Young Cannibals. Love Fine Young Cannibals. Need more respect. That they need so much more respect. I, f- I felt that. Same with the House Martins. They need more respect. Facts. Someone, One of my friends said they're like the Smiths with casual football violence. <laughs> It, it was like the, be- the best pitch for the House Martins. <laughs> That's good. And yeah, they were so, what I love about the House Martins, and I'm going to go off on a tangent, so political. Like, yeah. So political. And yet you don't Well, they'd have announcements at their it. shows and stuff, wouldn't they? Yeah. They'd, they'd be literally just like, yeah. fuck Thatcher and justice for this. And, you know, I, I'm convinced that all my political beliefs literally came from listening to the House Martins. My dislike of royalty yeah. came from listening to Flag Day by the House Martins yeah. endlessly over and over again when I was young. What's the five? Is, what's the fun? Fun is that yeah. five guys were excited? Yeah, that's five incredible. Excited, incredible. But your movie hit me so deep. But I think this is one for my therapist. But there's something about the representation of the '80s, mm. and when he's going to the shop, and then he goes with the parents. This all literally looks like people I grew up with. Mm. And the same thing hit me. The only thing that hit me as deep was when I watched. Carol Morley's Dreams of a Life mm. documentary, mm. where all these people look like people I grew up with mm. in Northwest London. And I don't know what it is. There's something about that era and the music yeah. that just totally brings me back to childhood, yeah. which was really heavy. Yeah. I mean, look, I think, you know, we're all trying to escape our childhoods every day of our lives, whether they were happy or not happy, we're still yeah. trying to escape them for various different reasons. Uh, and I think, you know, how we live in the world is so impacted by how we grew up. So it makes sense. And I think as the older we get, we think back more. And so, and I can be, look, in my mind, I can be dragged back to the 80s in a split second yeah. or the 90s or wherever it might be. And I can feel what it felt like. Like, it's so weird. Now, even when I watch something like E.T., that film E.T., yeah. I can literally feel how I felt when I was watching it on TV in the 80s yeah. at Christmas. I can smell what the room smelled like. Yeah. And it's amazing how some films can just bring you back. Um, and I think that's what, what good cinema does. It enables you to time travel. And if you can time travel, you know, you're accessing emotions that you haven't had for a while, which can be really interesting. What kind of teenager were you? Uh, pretty awful. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
Yeah, I was, yeah, uh, grumpy, moody, miserable, angry, getting into trouble. Really? Uh, yeah, I was I was always getting into trouble. I was not not like I was certainly wasn't uh like yeah. Well, what what kind of trouble just Oh, like... just drinking and smoking. And oh, like, fun. Yeah, okay. and like, you know, just normal stuff. I wasn't like going to prison or anything. I'm not <laughs> like <laughs> not like, you know, I wasn't stealing cars, but you know, I was, you know, I was an angry teenager. Mm-hmm. That's probably the best way to put it. And you said you wanted to make a movie specifically about someone from your era coming out. What, 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 why was it so, was it just a climate of the 80s that you wanted to? I feel like, I, I think when it really clicked to me what I wanted to do with the film was when I was sort of talk, thinking about grief, thinking about the things that we keep buried, pain that you grow up with that you're trying to uh, uh, get rid of or, or deal with in some way and how that never goes away. And so I think for a big generation, and I knew I wanted there to be a queer love story in this story yeah. at the same time, and you wanted to be that. And for a generation of, of gay people that grew up in the 80s, it was incredibly traumatic. It was a pretty dreadful, terrible time. And there's been lots of people who talked about it much smarter than me, but about this middle generation of gay people that grew up in the middle of AIDS. Mm-hmm. So they came to understand their sexuality as AIDS was already around and was killing people. Fuck, yeah. So we came into believing that I'm feeling this thing. I want to be with a man, but all I am seeing is people dying and everybody hating us. And so growing into that and thinking not only that, that your parents will absolutely reject you. So whatever this thing is that you're starting, and it doesn't just come in one day, you know, it's building up in you and you're coming to terms mm-hmm. with, with your sexuality throughout like from like, I would say eight years old onwards, all the way through your teenage years, it did for me. And everywhere around me was like, no, you're going to die. You're going to be lonely. You're never going to meet anybody and everyone's going to hate you. And so for a lot of gay people of that generation, we are traumatized by that feeling. And it's why there was so much shame and why there was so much like self-loathing that we didn't put on ourselves, it was put upon us. And so I think the story for me was about how we think we've moved on, but it's not always easy to move on. The world is very different now. Everyone seems to have forgotten how they treated us. It doesn't mean that we've forgotten it. We can still remember it. Right. And so for me, it was really interesting to match that with a story of loss and grief, because I remember reading this thing about gay people of a certain generation are often really nostalgic about something that they never actually had. And I'm really interested about nostalgia and how we... How that kind of hauntology, like Mark Fisher talks about. What, what, what does he say? He was referencing burial, that burial sounds like... I would say it sounds like haunted garage. Mm. But burial has never been to a fucking rave. That's but so his funny. brother went to raves so he, and would come back like, oh, we were in a fucking warehouse and it was crazy and everyone was on pills and, you know, the bangers were playing, but he's never been. But this is all his memory of what... Of what it could have been. Could have been or would, or would, have, would, been. would, would have been. Mm. And uh, he kind of, he's got this nostalgia for, like, when you see empty warehouses that raves were held in and stuff. That's so... But it makes so... It makes complete sense to me. I know a lot of, like, like queer people who've had quite difficult childhoods and they're constantly thinking about their childhoods and they want the perfect Christmas and they want to get like the Christmas tree right. And they want to yeah. like, and it just makes sense to me when nostalgia for something that we never really had, which was growing up. And look, you don't have to just be queer to experience that. Lots of people have difficult childhoods and you're wanting that back again somehow. You're wanting a perfect childhood. And in many ways, Adam's going back 
nostalgic for something. And then when he gets back there, he has to deal with the truth of what it might have felt like and has to deal with that, which is the thing that you should be looking at. Like that is the truth under the nostalgia that you need to unpick. And how was it working with your amazing two leads? You pretty lucked out. On- yeah, like Jesus, fuck, I'm so like happy that we managed to that we managed to uh, to to get them. They're all, I mean, look, they're all amazing in the film. There's four people yeah, in the film. True. Yeah, and like I watch them, and I'm like, if one of those four just didn't work, the whole film doesn't work. It's just a disaster. Like if it's got to work, and. Luckily, you know, it's, it's again, it's when you've made a few things, people sort of know the stuff that you like and they understand your films. And so they yeah. come to it with a certain idea of what the film is. And I know that they were all wanted to bring parts of themselves into those performances. And I really think they do. And I, I think they're, they're, all, they're all just brilliant. I love them in it. What was your most difficult scene to nail? It's so weird. It's, I think so, like, there's, there's things that are different, difficult emotionally. Like that are hard just to watch because they like might mean something to me. Like the scene with the dad and him when they talk yeah. in the lab. I find that quite a tough scene emotionally to watch. So there were things that become difficult like that. And then there were scenes that are just difficult technically. Like the scene of Claire and uh, all of them in bed talking and it's like one long shot. It was just a technically complicated scene. The diner scene was very difficult to get right, you know, emotionally. So it's like, I don't think there were any easy scenes there's always there's always something you know even if it's like you're outside when he's walking through the park and it's like we've got fucking wind machines blowing to yeah. make the wind right so it drifts away at the right moment that you never want to notice when you watch it it's just like you're feeling something the reality of filmmaking is that you're planning every single moment you know you've got like an industrial wind machine that's blasting <laughs> this noise across this tranquil scene and you're hoping that it's just going to bring some magic to to what it is on the screen did you watch Uzak? Was that a big reference? For I that? always watch Uzak, so I like watch. Oh god, it of course you do. <laughs> I watch it over and over again because like there's so much texture. In it. I love that film. Yeah, but like for like urban alienation and loneliness. I think there's a better. Or let's call it urban melancholy or whatever. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. That film is the best depiction of of, of that. But he does so much with like wind. All his films actually. There's mm. always wind that is there and drifts and and he's a master at like bringing you into a sort of strange liminal space that sort of comes out of nowhere sometimes in his films uh, and then just comes back again. And, and he, uh, he, he's really a master at that. So I often watch his movies, not just Uzak, just to sort of like, I don't know. Yeah, that's like the best representation of male loneliness Absolutely. I've seen on screen. I'm and sure. inability to communicate, but the desperation to you communicate. You can feel that they, they both kind of possess, quali- well, negative qualities in each other that they kind of resent each other and stuff. You can yeah. see and also they were they're actually desperate to connect. They do, yeah. yeah they really they. want to. They really, really deeply want to. But for whatever reason, uh they can't. And that just speaks to so many relationships. You often want to be honest. Like people have asked me in this of like, now I've had these conversations in the film. Would I have these conversations, say, with my mum? Mm. No is the answer. I wouldn't, because it's like real life is much harder to have yes. real conversations. In the film, in films you can sort of go to some magical space and have conversations and explore things that you can't in real life. Yeah, I find that really weird to my nephew and my brother, both us to my podcast. And I'm, I, I've definitely revealed things on my podcast that I haven't said. Anything. And do you talk to them about it when you know they've heard things? No, yeah. no, words we don't say. It's funny, isn't it? It's really weird. Yeah. I, I, think it was just, I think that's why you completely devastated the entire audience when you have the, no spoilers, the scene in Medina 
yeah. when the dad says what everyone wants to hear. Yeah. But they'll never say that. You'll, no. We'll never say it. And when, no. when you do lose someone or when they're at the end of your life, there aren't the conversations you have because actually you just usually don't want to make them afraid and you just want to be, you don't want to have those big conversations. I don't want to make it weird. <laughs> I don't want to make it weird. But that's basically, yeah. I don't want them to think that they're about to die is often yeah. what it gets, you know, is the emotion that you have. So you never get to actually have those conversations. But in some weird way, you can have them. You can just have them in your head. And that's almost can be enough, I think, sometimes. You have the film. Have your parents? You've probably been asked this a million times. Have your parents watched the film? Uh, my dad has dementia, so he won't. Right. He can't. He won't see it. He wouldn't. He wouldn't like understand what he was watching. But my mum has seen it. She came to. I did like a, a screening for her by herself to watch it, uh, and then she saw it at the London Film Festival there. Uh, and you know, I don't think it's necessarily easy for her to watch. Sure at all and we've sort of skirted around conversations afterwards in relationship to the film and then i'm just like oh it's fine let's just let's just go and have something to eat and let's not worry about it and let's talk about something else so it's it's funny isn't it how hard it is to actually say how you feel that's a beautiful line to end on let's end there perfect thank you That is me and Andrew Hay. Go see all of us strangers. Okay. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Joshua Eustace, a.k.a. Telephone Tel Aviv, for my beautiful music. And you guys for listening. We'll speak soon. (laughs) 